We are nearing the conclusion of a series of lessons in which we've been involved recently. The New Testament Christian, based upon a lectureship theme in uh, last March lectureship of the Memphis School of Preaching, a great many lessons on various aspects of New Testament Christianity. And I thought it would be good for us to look at some of those areas, which we have done and of late, we've been focusing on one particular theme within that theme, if you will. The New Testament Christian never stops growing. We have looked at or listed, previewed 12 such qualities or characteristics found in First Peter. And uh, we lack four in finishing up, and the Lord willing, we'll do that today and next Sunday morning based upon a key text in 1 Peter at chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And that statement clearly indicates that the word is the source that produces growth. We'll see that even as we look at two other aspects in which we should be growing in our Christian walk today. Those two aspects being good works and patience. Good works. The Bible has a great deal to say about works. And at First Peter, where we're drawing these 12 qualities from in our study, it is at verse 12 where the Apostle Peter makes clear that we are to engage in good works. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, if we had no other passage upon which to draw the conclusion that, that good works are an integral part of our salvation, that would sufficiently do it, would it not? That people are to observe our good works, not just simply observe what we tell them about who we are, that we profess to be Christians, but that we practice what we profess. And that practice is evident in the good works in which we are to be involved. Now, normally, I would not include as many passages in a lesson as I am going to include in just the first part of this lesson. And I do so on this topic not to, not to uh, produce an exegesis of every one of these uh, verses or to discuss them in, in detail, but I include as many as I am including under this topic of good works to, to demonstrate something that I wish were more clear to people claiming to be followers of Christ in the world in which we live today. And that is that good works permeate, absolutely permeate the New Testament. And passage after passage will demonstrate that. And time doesn't permit us to examine each passage in detail. But as I mentioned, I just want you to be struck, hopefully, by the number of passages that could be cited that make it abundantly clear that good works are an integral part of our pleasing 
God. And why is it important in the world in which we find ourselves today to do that? It is important because of the dominant contention that works have absolutely nothing to do with your salvation or mine. That's the dominant contention in the religious world. In so-called Christendom today, that is the contention. That it is not good works that have anything to do with your salvation, but rather either grace alone or grace through faith alone. But look with me at some of these passages. The statement of Jesus himself in John 10, 32. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? That passage clearly establishes that Jesus himself placed a premium on good works. Not only that, he attributed those good works that he did as he lived among men to the Father in heaven. The works that I do are good works. I am showing you those good works. They are from heaven. They are from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? You know, we could paraphrase that and change that somewhat and ask today, for which of the works that we contend in the Lord's church that a person must be involved in, for which of these works do you stone us verbally? For which of these works do you stone us and ridicule and deny and contend that works have nothing to do with one's salvation? And then, of course, in the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That they may see your good works. And then a third, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we've seen thus far is not only does Jesus say, I'm doing good works as I live among you, and those works are from the Father. He then enjoins that process upon us to continue in those good works in order to let our light shine so that others may see our good works and ultimately obey and glorify God in heaven. And then the Apostle Paul, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit and consistent with what the Lord himself taught as he walked among men, says to Christians, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. When did that take place? When one becomes a Christian, he's created in Christ Jesus. Created for what purpose? For good works. Created spiritually in obeying the gospel for the very purpose of carrying out good works. But whose works are they, as we've often pointed out? They're not works that I came up with by which I try to earn my salvation. One cannot do that. They're not works of the law of Moses that has been nailed to the cross and done away. It is not those works, but good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Works of obedience, clearly set forth in the New Testament. When we come to a group of widows who are mentioned in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 10, verse 9 speaks of not enrolling those in the number uh, who do not meet these uh, certain qualifications, and it may very well be that this was a special group of widows over 60 years old who were 
working in the church, to help the church through uh, helping other widows, etc. But what were the qualifications set forth for these women who were to be involved in this work or to be enrolled? Well reported for what? Good works. Well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed what? Every good work. These women had grown in their Christianity and they were involved in every good work. When Paul admonished Timothy to admonish the rich, he said, let them do good those who are rich materially, let them use what they have properly, in other words. Let them do good that they be rich in what? Good works. They're already rich in material things, but more importantly, they should be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And especially those who've been blessed materially, they should certainly have that kind of attitude to help others and to bless others as they've been blessed. Then we come to Titus 2 and verse 7. Paul writes to Titus, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, in corrupt ability. Then we come to Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And then at Joppa, there was a certain disciple, remember her, named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was what? Full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Have you been duly impressed with these passages and others that could be cited that make it abundantly clear that good works are mentioned time and time and time again? And yet there are those who say, no, we are saved by the grace of God. Well, let me show you another passage. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might, what, redeem us from every lawless deed, and notice this, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Oh, yes, I do not deny. In fact, I, I very strongly affirm we're saved by grace. Without the grace of God, there could be no salvation for any of us. But it is clearly not grace alone that saves. It's not grace through faith alone that saves, but grace through obedient faith and obedient faith among people who have obeyed the gospel and who remain zealous for good works. But to make it abundantly clear that it's not grace through faith alone, if you needed more, what about James and his great treatise? And we lift just two verses from that great treatise, verses 20 and 24. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? 
And then at verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Case closed. Case closed. How much more evidence would we need if we're honest with the Scriptures that salvation is not by grace alone, nor is salvation by grace through faith alone, but salvation is by grace through obedient faith, manifested by a belief in Jesus to be the Christ as the Son of God, repenting of our sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and then being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins, rising to what? Work in newness of life. Now you say, you misquoted that. You said rising to work in newness of life, and the passage says rising to walk in newness of life. Tell me an ounce of difference between rising to work in newness of life and rising to walk in newness of life. They are equivalent, because to walk is to work, and to work is to walk. And indeed, when I have expressed my faith in Christ through repenting, changing my mind about where I am, desiring to be elsewhere, when I've sweetened my lips with the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and when I have submitted my body to be buried in baptism as the Lord himself declared I must do, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. When I rise from that watery burial, I have not engaged in works of my own doing or works of a law that has been nailed to the cross, but works of faith without which no one can be saved. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And as I have often quoted James 2.24, you see then that a man is justified by faith and not, or by works and not by faith alone. I have added this comment. Oh, James, I wish we did. I wish we did see it. As we should in the nation and the world in which we live. But James thinks we should see it based upon that great treatise on faith, doesn't he? You see then? You see? And indeed, we should. Good works are not to be avoided. Good works are the means by which we appropriate and accept the grace of God by a faith that can only show itself by works. And a faith that refuses to do so James, by inspiration, says is dead. It is dead and therefore cannot save. A very familiar text in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, here it is again, for every good work. If I want to grow in good works, the only source that I need is the all-sufficient Word of God. It equips me for every good work. It enables me to be complete and whole and mature spiritually. It has that kind of power because it is as Paul states in this text, inspired by God. Literally, as we've pointed out before, inspired, God breathed. God breathed. And so, not only must I contend for good works, I must continue to grow in those good works and be as Dorcas was, 
full of good works, full of good works, motivated by a gratitude for the grace of God that makes possible my salvation. But that grace alone does not make that salvation possible. I must appropriate that, appropriate that grace by an obedient faith. And once I have, I'm to also grow in another quality, the second at which we look today, and that is patience. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. Now, if someone beats you because you've done wrong, then there's no spiritual profit in that, obviously. But when you do good and someone beats you for doing good, then that is commendable before God. In this last part of our lesson, I want to look at patience from three standpoints. The essence of patience is the first thing at which we look, and then examples of patience, and then the end of patience. And be patient with me. I'm not going to take forever to do that. The essence of patience is endurance. The word literally means in the New Testament abiding under. Abiding under. And sometimes we have it translated endurance, but abiding under. Abiding under. In other words, the idea is standing up or remaining or keeping on going despite the fact that you are under, under some stress, under some trial, under some difficulty. Patience or abiding under is not demonstrated when everything is wonderful. That's not when patience is really put to the test. And... That's not when patience grows. If I want to grow in patience, should I pray to the effect to God that he not in any way allow anything to happen to me that's adverse so that I may grow in my patience? That would be, that would be contradictory. In other words, I have to accept that patience is, is really proved and improves as I do face the inevitable trials that will come. Now, I understand that I can, I can learn a great deal about the need to be patient from the Word of God, obviously. In fact, that's the only source I can learn about how to do it. But what the Bible teaches me is how to do it when the trial comes. How to do it when the trial comes. But without the trial, without the trial, can I really, really grow as I should in patience? But with the word of God firmly fixed in my mind and a determination to do right when times are good as well as when times are not good, then when those times are not good, then I can abide under. I can endure based upon the power of the word of God. And we'll see that in one of the passages we'll look at in just a moment. On one occasion, the Lord said, by your patience, possess your Souls. He was talking about, about the destruction of Jerusalem and also, of course, the end of the world is involved in these texts in Matthew 24, Luke 21. But 
he's saying you're going to have to stand up under some very difficult things. In this same context, he talks about being put before governors and kings and others. Don't worry about what you'll say. It'll be given you what you will say. And, and in this same context, he says, there will be those who will put you to death. Will put you to death. But by your patience, possess your souls. In other words, be prepared to stand up. Be prepared to stand up. And our graphic, which we used last Sunday night when we were talking about Paul's program for spiritual development, indicates that growth process. And the climb is sometimes difficult, and the climb is not without its challenges. But if we'll depend upon the Word of God and use those challenges to strengthen our patience rather than to dampen our spiritual enthusiasm, then indeed we can ultimately we can ultimately endure at the end when life is over or when the Lord comes again. What about examples of patience? Well, James reminds us of some examples when he writes, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Now James obviously is one who, who writes a great deal and we'll come back to him in just a few moments in another part of the epistle. But in this part of the epistle he calls upon his readers to think about the prophets. To think about the prophets. Think about any number of prophets who, who suffered so much and yet they endured. Think about Elijah. Think about on one occasion where he sat under that juniper tree and, and was so discouraged he begged God to die. Because I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's still serving you. And of course, God reminded him, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and I have more work for you to do. And to Elijah's credit, he gave up his pity party he was having there and moved on and did much greater work and was ultimately ultimately translated, did not see death. But what did he suffer? He suffered greatly. Jezebel had determined after his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and all of them had been slain, Jezebel, hearing about it, said, by this time tomorrow, he'll be in the same predicament. Yes, he had challenges. What about Jeremiah? Why do we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet? Because of what he wept over concerning the sins of the people to whom he prophesied, but also he had to endure physical deprivation, suffering, pain, and any number of prophets could be cited in that similar situation who despite the challenges and despite the suffering, they endured. They were those who abode under faithfully that suffering. And then there's a passage in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5 that reminds us of the greatest example of patience who ever walked the earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There Paul writes, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Sounds very much like he's saying, Grow doesn't it? 
and continue to grow into the love of God with God's love for you as the perfect standard of love and grow into the patience of Christ as the patience of Christ being the perfect standard of patience, endurance. And if we had <clears throat> any doubt about that endurance, all we'd have to do is just simply read various passages in the New Testament that make it abundantly clear that Christ did endure so much and yet did not respond in a negative way but endured all of that suffering and even on the cross in the midst of that pain and sorrow as he bore the sins of mankind upon his sinless shoulders he had the patience that was demonstrated in the expression father forgive them for they know not what they do should I not be looking to his example. Peter, in this same epistle from which we're drawing these, uh, these qualities of growth, makes it abundantly clear that we should. In verse 21 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he writes, For to this you were called. He's already been talking about suffering. You were called to suffer. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer, of your souls. There's the example of patience, endurance, suffering that we should be emulating. And in Colossians 1, 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul writes that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, now notice it, for unto all patience and long-suffering with what? With joy. With joy? Yes, indeed, we've talked about it before, with joy. Patience, endurance, long-suffering with joy? Yes, James says the same thing in James 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. In the New King James, there's a passage in Revelation that is translated this way, because you have kept my command to persevere. The King James renders it, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, the word of my patience. Doesn't that clearly indicate to us that if we want to be patient, have the ability to abide under no matter what comes our way, it's going to take this word in order to accomplish that. We're going to have to have this word, the word of my patience, the word that tells you how to be patient, the word that tells you of the patience of Christ. So we've seen the essence of patience and 
examples of patience, but what about the end of patience? We've already alluded to the text and quoted it. James tells us the end of patience is maturity spiritually, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the what? Testing of your faith produces patience. James, later on in this same chapter, will tell us, don't think that because the Lord allows you to be tested that he's tempting you to sin. No. The Lord doesn't tempt anyone. He can't be tempted to sin. He will not tempt anyone to sin. But the Lord will not shield us from every difficulty in this life. What he will do is give us the source that can provide the shield that will keep us from falling when we do encounter those difficulties. Are they extremely severe at times? Why, some of you right here this morning know how severe those challenges can be and those difficulties are in your lives. But thanks be to God, there's something beyond the suffering. And that is the hope that lies ultimately for us after this life is over, but also, also the reassurance that indeed God is with us through the suffering and that there have been so many others who are listed right here who can help us as those examples we've cited to endure even with joy, not the suffering itself, but the rejoicing that we're in the Lord even in those difficult and challenging times. And we conclude with this passage as it reminds us, summarizes, I believe, beautifully what we're to be about in regard to this particular quality of patience. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with what? King James says patience. New King James here says endurance. That's the idea, isn't it? Run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. That's the key. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And if we'll follow that example of patience, we can ultimately be around that throne, praising him for all eternity in a state of bliss that is beyond the capability of the finite mind to fully comprehend. But it's going to take patience. It's going to take the ability to abide under whatever comes our way. And thanks be to God we can do it with the source that will allow it and with the comfort that we gain from others who use this as their source, and that is our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Can't have that comfort unless you have been obedient to the source that produces that comfort, and that is the New Testament, which as we have already outlined says you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You must repent of your sins, that is change your mind about sin, 
desiring to be forgiven of it, and then confess that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and then be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. For Jesus put it so clearly and succinctly when he said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. If you haven't done those things, we plead with you to do that this morning. And if you understand and appreciate that while you once did those things that placed you into Christ, allowed you to rise to walk in newness of life, that your walk has been interrupted by the things of the world and that no longer can it be said that you are abiding under in good or bad times. You can come home and must come home to your first love in order to once again have that joy, that peace, and that hope that you once had. If you'll repent of sins that need to be confessed in a public way, we'll pray with you and for you to the God who awaits your return and eagerly anticipates your homecoming as we stand to sing. Will you come?